Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. Noah Bendix Bowgley was born in Asheville, North Carolina, and began playing the violin at four years old. He has been a prize winner in multiple competitions and has soloed with orchestras all over the world. In 2011, at the age of 26, he was appointed concertmaster of the Pittsburgh Symphony, and then three years later joined the Berlin Phil as first concertmaster arguably the best orchestra in the world. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Great to be here. Great to speak with you today. So you have an impressive background. Are you on your dream journey? I mean, if you had asked me when I was a teenager or just getting into college and told me this is where I would be at this age, I would say I probably wouldn't have believed it. But in the end, everything turned out. I think it it was sort of an organic development and journey and I didn't start out with the plan to become concertmaster of the Berlin Philharmonic. I had dreams of being, you know, a professional musician on the great concert stages of the world. But I don't think I really, at a young age, imagined how that would actually be in reality. And so each step of the way sort of built on itself, on on what came before. And then I I found this role as being a concertmaster ended up being something that I really, really enjoy doing. And I feel I can bring a lot to so I guess that's, in, of course, getting the job here was an absolute dream come true and something I didn't expect. And now I'm trying to find ways of using it now to keep expanding my horizons and challenging myself in a creative way. Yeah, that's it's really, really something. I, I guess your track was more playing competitions, right? Because you do have a, a big track record of being in the finals in multiple competitions. Which ones were they, by the way? In my early 20s, for about five or six years, I was using competitions as a way of sort of challenging myself and testing my mettle, so to say, Mm -hmm. and seeing if it could lead anywhere for my career. Um, So when I was still a student in Bloomington, Indiana, as an undergraduate, I started doing some of the smaller things in the States, competitions like, you know, American String Teacher Association and things like that. Had a little success with that. And then my teacher at the time, Mauricio Fuchs, who's still a professor there, decided it was good. We should start to prepare for major international competitions. So we started that. And then around that time, I moved to Munich, Germany to study in graduate, graduate studies there. And so I started entering these competitions and at first was not at all successful. I was always out in the first round. There were such a huge repertoire list to prepare and the pressure would get to me. And it was at the beginning, not easy at all, Mm -hmm. but I gained experience over the years, started to, you know, advance to the second round, maybe to the semifinals. Uh, And then around 2007, 2008, I started to to have some success and win some prizes. I won a top prize at the Thibaut competition in Paris, which was nice because then that got me some concerts in, in France and I got to play in the finals with the Radio France Philharmonic, which is wonderful. And then the following year, then I thought, you know, I might as well shoot for the stars and, and try the big, biggie, so to say. And that's the Queen Elizabeth competition in Brussels, uh-huh. which is sort of 
for violinists, also, I guess, pianists, it's sort of the one that you put at the top of the ranking. It's sort of the Olympics of, of the violin, so to say. And that was a huge undertaking. I mean, I spent the better part of a whole year preparing for it. And the competition itself lasts basically an entire month that you're there in Brussels. Wow. And it was just an incredible way to to challenge myself and test myself. And so I, made, I managed to get to the finals of that and was named at Laureate. And that ended up opening various other doors professionally, some of which I did not at all expect. It was a very intense time of my education and development. And I think it really helped me try to find and identify what I had to offer as, as a musician, as an artist. And so after that, then I kind of had a choice to make, which was whether I wanted to keep doing these competitions, try to really get a few first prizes, which is very hard to predict, mm-hmm. and see if that can lead to you know a solo career, management, all those kind of things, or think about getting you know a job in the real world. Yeah. And as I was thinking about this question of what to do, at the same time, I was also very active with chamber music. I had a string quartet in Munich as well, which was doing decently well um, and was, was also a big passion of mine. And as I was sort of considering these things, I was 26 at the time, I got an email out of the blue and asking whether I was interested in trying out for the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra concertmaster job. And it was such a sort of serendipitous thing. I, I was just at the time when I was thinking, well, maybe I should think about auditioning for some concertmaster jobs, see if this is something that interests me. And then I got this offer to come play an audition and play a guest week with one of the best American orchestras. So I, I immediately jumped at it without really any expectation of how it would turn out. Um, and that's sort of how that journey started into a career as a concertmaster. But of course, as you mentioned, the great thing about this position is it allows me to pursue all different sides of my musical self, so to say. I mean, play all the great works in the orchestra and, and lead as a concertmaster, but also keep a very active solo career, keep active as a chamber musician. All of those things come together, and, and I'm very lucky to be able to do all of those in my musical life. Had you taken any orchestra auditions before that Pittsburgh concertmaster opportunity opened up? No, I mean, I, I, I never really thought seriously about it. But of course, the competitions were a very good preparation because it's the same sort of concept. It's basically, you know, you have a set of pieces you have to play and you, you're put under the most imaginable pressure to do it. And then you, you see how you come out on the other end. I think that was really good preparation to be doing that. I've been doing that for a few years and things like the Brussels competition, which I mentioned in the finals of that, you're on live TV there and you're playing with an orchestra, but it's not just a concerto. You play a a completely new modern concerto that was written for the occasion. And you had a week to learn beforehand and a sonata and then one week. (laughs) Yeah. And the way they do it is really, it's like isolation as a boot camp. I mean, if you progress to the finals, then you are brought to this place called the Chapelle, which is a, a music school. And at the time, they have it empty. And you and the other competitors stay there for a week preparing your final round. So everybody comes in a week before they play, and you get the score of this piece when you walk in the door. <laughs> are you expected to play that by memory at the end of the week? No, I mean, it depends on the piece. The year I had it, it was incredibly difficult, and nobody played it by memory. Some other years, it's been doable to do by memory. But <laughs> it was hard enough without having to memorize it. 
I bet. I know I've heard stories from people who've attended Curtis that often in the violin studio, especially in the first couple of years, you would be expected to learn a full concerto memorized and with an accompanist per week. Mm. So I always thought that was really trial by fire, but I guess this is essentially what you're training for in that exercise is learning how to do something like that. It's true. But I mean, and, and I think we take it now for granted as professional orchestral musicians too, but we do something very similar too. We get a completely different program every week. And sometimes it's things we know, and sometimes it's really difficult things you don't know. And so that's something I always try to tell music students who are still in conservatory is that, that the time you have to really prepare something over an extended amount of time so that you feel good about every single note in it, that's a luxury because once you're a professional, you don't have that time. You have to really budget things well and plan accordingly so that you're up to speed with everything that's coming at you because the amount of notes and pieces we encounter daily and weekly is immense. Yeah, well, it sounds like doing the competitions was a great training tool for you in so many ways. We talked about in our Stephen Isserlis interview on our inaugural podcast, how he did one competition and that was it. <laughs> and after that, he said no more. And for you, it's really been an opposite situation where you've benefited so much from challenging yourself. And the pressure of that is not unlike an orchestra audition, although spread out over a month, maybe versus a day or two. <laughs> yes. And I mean, honestly, I can't say I enjoy doing the competitions. And, you know, there's so many parts of them that are just incredibly frustrating because you have so little control over the politics of the jury, or if you pick a bad number and you end up having to play at a horrible time of day, things like that are out of your control. And so over the years, I really did try to look at it as a learning experience, as a tool to challenge myself and to have opportunities to play for audience and play for distinguished people in my field and try not to think so much about the aspect of, I want to win a first prize, because that's really something you can't <laughs> control. Even if you played your absolute best, it could go somebody else's way that day. That's not something you can control. And it's the same thing with auditions, as you know. Right. You have to always just put your best foot forward. That's all you can control. Mm, yeah. What decision other people make is out of your hands. And if you start focusing on that, it becomes very frustrating. Exactly. Yeah. So how different was it really focusing on that repertoire when you got the call, come audition with us at the Pittsburgh Symphony versus preparing for a competition? I mean, I assume it didn't take you a year to prepare for that audition like it did for Queen Elizabeth. No, I mean, of course, the solo things... I knew which, you know, the big concertos that they wanted to hear. And then, of course, for the concertmaster edition, I had to learn the big concertmaster solos, which were fairly new for me, but I had some time and I really, you know, approached them in a concentrated way. And at the time, I really tried to get advice from as many other concertmasters as possible. You know, when I was in Munich, I looked up the concertmasters of the orchestras there and just asked if I could play for them. And mm -hmm. and people like Alex Carr, who's a concertmaster of Dallas Symphony now, yep. and what used to be in Concertgebouw, he's somebody I knew from Indiana. He's somebody else I turned to and for advice and for feedback, just to, to get a lot of ideas and instruction. That side of it was maybe more straightforward than the side of actually having trial weeks in the orchestra because it was not something I, I had done much. I mean, I played concertmaster in school orchestras and conservatory orchestras and played some subbing in some small professional settings in Europe. But going out there and being concertmaster of a top 
professional orchestra it was something that was pretty new to me. And so that was a very quick learning curve. Were you more nervous for that trial week than the competitions or would how would you compare that experience? Well, I think I was lucky in some sense that I had no expectations of it. I was happy to have the opportunity, but I sort of thought they would be crazy to seriously consider me. I mean, you know, this is one of the really big concertmaster jobs in America, and I was 26 years old. I had a resume that was pretty good, but didn't have concertmaster on it. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, you know, they probably they're just curious about this guy who's, you know, has some competition things on his resume, some chamber music. The one thing I ended up finding out after the fact was that one of the main reasons they had even contacted me was that the conductor's son, also a violinist, had seen the video of me playing at the Brussels competition and had sort of mentioned my name to the conductor. And then he, he had watched and had, I guess, had liked my Mozart concerto and then passed it on to the committee. So it was just a kind of random thing that with the age of YouTube worked out okay and got me even into the running. So at that point, but I, of course, didn't know any of this. I was just going in there, trying to do my best, trying to just see what role I could play there and offer what I had to offer as a musician, as a, as a violinist. So how did it go from Pittsburgh to the opportunity to audition at Berlin? Well, I mean, after the Pittsburgh it was almost a trial year. I think I was there three times, played multiple auditions. And then after, at the end of that, they offered me the job. And then I went there in 2011 and I played three full seasons there. The last, the fourth season I was there, I was sort of splitting it already with Berlin. But in those three years in Pittsburgh, I was learning the ropes, learning the repertoire. You know, every single week I was woodshedding just learning everything from the ground up, unless it was a piece that I happened to know, studying scores, doing bowings for the section. It was, at the beginning, was really, really hard work. But at the end of two or three years, I had a big chunk of the orchestral repertoire that I'd, I'd been through and felt comfortable leading and had played a lot of the solos. So it was a very good start. And it's a wonderful orchestra, just really, really wonderful people and musicality. They really care about every note they play there and, and support each other. So it was just an ideal place to kind of to land as a new concertmaster. And then in 2014, I was playing at a chamber music festival in the States, randomly with a German violist who plays here in the Berlin Philharmonic. And he mentioned that they had an audition coming up and said, would you like to maybe send in a resume? And I thought, yeah, of course I would like to send in a resume, but there's no shot. Uh, so I did, I sent in the resume and I kind of forgot about it until they sent the invitation. Here in Germany, they send the invitations out three and a half or four weeks before they audition. So, oh, wow. That's a, that's a long trip. Well, yeah. And it's not much time to actually get your head around yeah, it. Not much time at all. So I, I mean, I, I had serious doubts whether I should even attempt it because I was in the middle of the concert season. I had other things going on. And in the end, I decided that when would the next time be that there's an open concertmaster position in the Berlin Philharmonic. I was 30 at the time. I thought, if you're going to go for it, now's the time. So yeah, I prepared. It was not a huge audition list. And unlike the American audition model for concertmasters, where usually there's an audition and then there are trial weeks afterwards before you are maybe offered the job, in Berlin, it's simply an audition. 
Uh-huh. And so at the end of the day, they offered me the job. But of course, then once you get the job, that's the beginning of an extended trial period, which is where they really look at you under the microscope. But the day went well. I, I got through all the, all the rounds pretty well. And actually, at the end, was sort of enjoying the experience playing there in the Philharmonie, is this great music. So it was. It went by very quickly. The, <laughs> it was quite shocking how quickly that, that actually happened. So did they keep a screen up the whole time? No. In our orchestra, in the Berlin Philharmonic, we don't have the screens during the auditions. And especially with things like Concertmaster, because most of the people they're inviting are, so to say, known entities anyway. So there was no screen up. And the other thing that's different about audition here is that you're not auditioning for a committee. You're auditioning for the entire orchestra. So Oh, wow. That's really different. 70, 80, 90 people out there. So that's... First of all, it's very nerve-wracking. On the other hand, you can try to make it seem more like a concert rather than a, a test. So there are kind of two sides to that. We're going to pause for a short break. To all of you other cello sherpas out there nurturing future generations of cellists or any other instrument, we have a new feature just for you. Many of the topics we will cover here on the Cello Sherpa podcast are worthy of further discussion, so we wanted to let you know about teaching points we will be posting on our website after each podcast. We develop these materials with you and your students in mind. Feel free to copy them, hand them out, and use them as assignments to be completed after listening to our podcast, or just tools for raising the level of professionalism in your studio classes, rep classes, orchestra, or band programs. Please visit our website for more information and click on the Teaching Points tab. And as always, give us some feedback on what you'd like to learn more about on the Cello Sherpa podcast. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever platform you get your podcast from. This helps our rankings and makes it easier for others to find us. So how long is their trial period? How does tenure work there? Is it the same, different? What are they like comparatively? Well, I think my sense is, and I don't have the figures to back this up, but my sense is that more people do not get tenure here than in the States. I feel like in the States, when once you get the job, you really have to kind of screw something up to not get tenure, mm-hmm. you know, especially in, in a principal position where you've been through that rigorous audition, but then also trial weeks coming a few times, people are checking out doing this. In Berlin here, since it's only the audition, and how you play as an individual in front of the orchestra, then there's a big chance that maybe it wouldn't work out. You show up and you actually start playing, and then maybe it's actually completely the wrong mix. I mean, of course, most of the time it works out, but I think a bigger percentage doesn't actually work out here. And here, you know, officially it's a two-year trial period, two seasons, but if things are going well, it can be shortened. I think mine was about a, a year and a half before I was then granted the full tenure. So tenure, and then does tenure work the same after that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. At that point, then you're you're in for good. <laughs> I mean, the only difference being here, we have a mandatory retirement age, 65, 66. So that's, that's a, a sort of a limit on how long you can stay. But once you get in, then, then you're set for it until, yeah. Yeah. Until then. Then, you know, you really have to make sure you don't show up at work, yeah. uh, drunk or <laughs> say something obnoxious to the wrong person, like the music director, yeah, <laughs> things exactly. like that. Insubordination would get you fired. <laughs> so. and, and the other other maybe interesting point to make about our orchestra, about the Berlin Philharmonic, is that all of these decisions are completely made by the musicians. So the music director 
first of all, is hired by the musicians by a vote. Mm -hmm. And also in terms of hiring people in the orchestra, the music director can come to audition and they can vote, but their vote isn't worth any more than any of those other 85, 90 people there. And the tenure process, who is getting to stay on, you know, who passes their trial, that's completely decided by the orchestra. Interesting. So were you in Pittsburgh long enough to see whether that makes a significant difference, having the music director have the largest say versus the orchestra members having the say? Could you possibly see how that affects things? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I de definitely sat in a lot of auditions in Pittsburgh, sat on the committees for, for strings. And there were, yeah, I suppose there were cases where it becomes a, a topic of whether the sort of musician's choice is the same choice as, as that of the music director. In Pittsburgh, it was always quite harmonious, but I can see how it could be contentious in, in certain uh, situations. So, I mean, of course, the setup we have in Berlin is quite unique that we actually select the music director, just the musicians in a room together. Yeah. Select and that's that's something that's quite unique. I mean, the, I guess comparable is the Vienna Philharmonic, who don't even have a music director; they just bring in guests. But this sort of papal conclave, in orchestral sense, is something that I think only Berlin Philharmonic is doing. So, what would you say was the most surprising difference between the two orchestras? When I came here, I was a bit surprised how the rehearsal buildup goes in a normal orchestra week where you have rehearsals, dress rehearsal, then a concert. I was used to in Pittsburgh and other American orchestras that I know of, and I have colleagues and friends in, that the first rehearsal is at an incredibly high technical level already to start with. And in Berlin, the first rehearsal is sometimes rather chaotic. I mean, it's more sort of everybody just getting their footing, reading the piece, getting a sense of the conductor if they're a guest. And then the climb up to the concert level is very quick and very steep. And so that's a little bit different. You know, I was maybe expecting something closer to what I was used to in the States. And the other thing was, and this is something that, that also took a little getting used to, in my training and my experience in the States, I was sort of used to this idea that you have your rehearsals, you work on everything, you get it to a point, then you play the dress rehearsal, and that's that's the level you're going to be at. And in the concert, you kind of try to keep that. You try to replicate everything that worked and everything that you've worked on. And in Berlin, I think I would describe the dress rehearsal still as a rehearsal. I mean, it's still, it's it's concert ready, but the orchestra thrives and loves to have a step that goes beyond that, that we reach the ensemble tightness and the, the agreement on interpretation and the dress rehearsal. But then after that, there's another notch that gets turned and everybody brings a little bit of extra adrenaline and creativity to the concert. And that can be really exciting and really risky. You know, there's a sense in this orchestra in Berlin that you want to be living life on the edge in a good artistic way that taking chances in the concert. And so that's, that's something that I had to get used to too, especially in my position leading, leading the section, leading the orchestra from the concert master chair is how best to lead and provide structure there. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it could be a little terrifying at times. <laughs> yeah, it can be, but it's also incredibly exciting and you feel it. There's, you know, 
I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've had this this experience in concerts that you feel that suddenly something clicks and everybody's going for it in a, in a really exciting way. And that's what I really, really love playing here is, is that happens often and you just kind of look around and you, you realize, okay, it's happening and there's that thing in the hair. And it, it can, sometimes it can fall apart too, yeah. you know, because people take it too far or they interpret what the conductor is trying to do in a little bit different way. But that sense of just pushing the envelope to make it something that's not just good and, and perfect, but something that's really memorable is something I really appreciate here. Yeah, that that's something I think many of us have been missing over this past year with no audiences and of recording course. things. We don't yeah. get that exciting energy that you get for a concert. I'm looking forward to returning to that. Yeah, <laughs> I, me too. I mean, we we had this... I mean, we've been now in some degree of lockdown for about five months. And a couple of weeks ago, we had the permission to have a pilot project, a trial concert, where they had, again, audience about almost half full in the hall, a thousand people. And they had this very complicated thing where they managed to get everybody in the audience tested on the day of the concert. So to get into the concert hall, to show a negative test result. And this was sort of a one-off to see how it works. It worked actually very, very well. And for us to play in front of this audience, I mean, it was just amazing. When we walked out on stage, there were goosebumps and the amount of, it's sort of, we forgot also how much energy the audience gives us because playing just for the cameras, for the microphones, we just keep giving, giving, giving and hoping that somehow it's getting across, but to have the audience there in the same room again, it was very powerful. Yeah. So how does the workload compare? In a given week, we generally, I would say, have four rehearsals for most concerts. How does it compare in Berlin? It's comparable. I think maybe we might have one more rehearsal. Of course, our music director will be usually an extra rehearsal. But the thing that's different is that the size of the orchestra here is bigger by a substantial amount. I mean, we have 128 full-time players. And what that means is that basically on any given week, nearly a third of the orchestra is off. And I'm one of three first concertmasters. So the three of us split up the season. Sometimes for important things, two of us play. But basically it means that we're playing a little more than half of the time Mm -hmm. throughout a season. Now, the season is very busy. I mean, it's depends, but usually 31, 32 weeks of core classical repertoire plus touring. Yeah. So there, you can't say there are any light weeks. On the other hand, there are big stretches of time where you can be away doing other things. And that's, I think, something that's, I think, now having experienced both, I think is very healthy because people feel like they have the opportunity and the, the time to pursue their own passions, musical or otherwise, on the side. And when they then come back to the orchestra, they're full of energy and new impulses and ideas. And there's less of a chance that week after week that somehow it falls into a rut and to a routine that's no longer exciting and inspiring. So that's a great thing. And also something that I'm very happy about because it allows me to carry on other aspects of my career too, to play solo concerts, to do projects with my groups, um, chamber groups and all kinds of other things. Yeah. And I think that is important in the growth of a musician over the arc of a career to have some downtime, to focus on other things. And sometimes it's not even music. It's something else to give you yeah, the chance yeah. to just cleanse yourself. So when you come back to it, you can come with a fresh approach. Exactly. Yeah. So if you could go back to your younger self and give yourself advice, what would you say now that you have this experience behind you so far? <laughs> 
I mean, maybe I would have listened to a little more orchestral music when I was younger and not just the violin concertos. But I think in the end, I don't really, I don't have so many regrets about how kind of everything turned out. I mean, I think I was pretty naive about how the actual music business works when I was younger until I actually got into it. And so maybe I would, I would have wished that I had a little more idea about that. But other than that, I think... I'm happy how the natural sort of succession of things played out. Where do you see yourself in another 10 years? Are you going to stay where you are? I think for the moment I'm staying where I am and, and the work with the orchestra is quite inspiring at the moment. We have a new music director and that's very exciting. And, you know, I have a lot of other things going on with my own projects and it's a really good place to be for that. Berlin is a really active place artistically. There's just, there's a lot of things going on in music and theater and art. And so many people have sort of chosen here as a base. It's very central in Europe. And so not just orchestral musicians, but freelancers, conductors, music management, music labels, uh, recording labels. There's so much of it going on here. So it's a really good place to be at the moment. At some point, I think I'll devote more of my energy to teaching and we'll see where that takes me. But that's a little bit off in the future, I think. Is there any other helpful advice you'd like to offer to our audience that I might have missed? I think the thing I'm realizing more and more, especially with this pandemic now and trying to figure out how we're going to get out of it once live music starts again, it's going to be tough. I mean, we're going to all be very, very happy to play for audiences and have real concerts again. But the pressure this has put on our industry on many, many freelancers or, or organizations, whether they're big orchestras or small ones. I mean, it's really, really tough. I and mean, a lot of people haven't survived it in a professional sense. I mean, you hear all these stories of people who have taken on a completely different profession now. And that's very sad. And I think the thing that I take out of it is the sense that when we come out of this, we have to be even more convincing and passionate about what we do, that every single performance when we go out there has to really have an impact. We can't afford to phone at home one night a week because the stakes are too high for what we do. And so that's that's something I've been thinking about a bunch. When things were normal, when we were playing every week, three concerts and on tour and this and that, and you get in sort of a routine of this is the way things are always and of course there'll be a concert next week and and this will keep going and next season and and when that has been taken away now for a year and maybe, you know, another another half year, we don't know exactly how long it'll be till we're back to normal. It makes us realize, first of all, how lucky we are to be able to do this professionally and also how fragile the, it is and how essential that every experience with an audience, with there's that connection, how essential that is and how important that that is really meaningful. So that's something I've been, you know, when I'm talking to young violinists and students, I've been trying to pass on is that urgency of what we're doing. Yeah. So where can people find you on social media? I'm on Facebook under my name, Noah Bendix Bowgley, and on Instagram, Noah Violin. I post clips from some of my concerts and what I've been up to. There's some some things on YouTube. And of course, if you want to look at the Berlin Philharmonic, we have the Digital Concert Hall, which is our own online portal where you can watch live concerts, live streaming, but also all of the things from our archive, which 
are basically every concert we've done since 2009, I think, <laughs> basically every program, not to mention documentaries and historic footage and stuff. So there's so much on there that's interesting to watch. And it's been a real wonderful tool to have in these times too, is this concert hall online. Yeah, this is something that's going to stay with us. I think that's the one silver lining of the pandemic yeah. is Berlin was on the cutting edge with this, but at our hall, we just installed eight robotic cameras and it's going to be an option for people to listen at home from anywhere around the world or come to concerts. And I think this is a really positive development that will be good for all of us moving forward. Absolutely. And, and the sense that, you know, having that capability, that's not taking away from the experience of going to the concert live. It's just, it's in addition to it, it's another way to reach our audience either close by or that with this, we have the opportunity to reach them on the other side of the world. I've been very happy to see the kind of innovations that people are doing with this in the last year. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. Be sure and catch our next episode where we get a behind-the-scenes look from Evans Mirages, Artistic Director at Cincinnati Opera and Vice President for Artistic Planning at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. We're here to serve you, so if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like us to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us, at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Be sure and subscribe to the Cello Sherpa podcast so you'll be notified when our next episode posts. Today's episode was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Joel Dallow.